this is Scholar Chips, and my name is Tone. I go by Tone.Games on Instagram, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Larry Alexander. I go by That's Law on Instagram and Twitter. We created this pod for people that are trying to balance the duality um, of, of being professional and being, you know, you fill in the blank of whatever, you know, because mm-hmm. it's hard trying to figure out where you stand or where you belong in this society or in this world. I, most of my life, I've I struggled with the sense of belonging to a certain demographic mm-hmm. or society. You know, just because I I was always like the smart kid at the hood school, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or like the black kid or another day, you know, and it, it kind of, uh, it always stuck with me that I can, I can be both people, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? So, you know, to me, scholarships is for those of us who are trying to find a sense of belonging and understanding uh, that you belong this entire time. What, what does scholarships mean to you? I just think growing up, especially in Milwaukee, everybody thinks you got a hoop. Or rap to be successful. That's it, or or sell drugs. Or yeah, exactly. And for me, it's like, no, you can do your homework. You can go to class. You can do those things consistently, and you can end up making over six figures. No, it's a it's a hard sell when you you're telling the kid from the hood who you know doesn't have food or doesn't have whatever you know wants to wants the new J's, but they can't. Their parents can't afford them. It's hard telling them like you know, in ten years. You can have, you can make six figures. Mm-hmm. You can figure mm-hmm. it out if you just do homework. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you you kind of assert yourself in the same in the right situation. I mean, I get it. Like on Instagram, you see the dunks, you see the layups, you see the rappers with, with the chains and all that stuff, and it's cool. It's appealing. Like they're selling a the lifestyle. So part of this too is like we got to figure out how to show people it's cool to be smart. Yo, peace. Uh, this is Scholar Chips. We're back again. All I'm gonna say is yesterday's price is not today's price. Yeah. <laughs> we got we got the man, the myth, the legend in the house today. Today's guest is my good friend Brandon Rule. Uh, I've known B for what twelve years, something like that. Twelve. Yeah, bro, like two thousand. Going on twenty. Probably something like that. I know it's been a minute. Like oh five or six. Yeah, yeah. We we first met at uh, Pick and Save. We both were pushing carts. Uh, you know, stopping people from stealing meat. 17 an hour. 17 an hour. Seven dollars <laughs> and ten cents an hour. No, no. Oh yeah, yeah. You right. Seven ten. Well you you were a little higher than me You were a veteran, so maybe what seventeen and I was making six twenty five or something. But uh things have changed now. Uh we've we've elevated. Uh Brandon is very much so in the real estate development business. Uh he has so many accolades, I'll do myself a disservice if uh, I even began to list them. Um, if you've been tuning into this podcast, you're starting to get a theme that we've got a lot of talented friends. Um, and today's uh, another example of that someone that I saw go from, uh, you know, humble beginnings like us, and to now he's building uh, a platform that um, I just can't wait to see where it goes. With that, I'll let him introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his uh, background. Cool, man. Thank y'all. First and foremost, appreciate y'all for having me on the platform. I haven't been doing any speaking engagements of this sort. So, but y'all call, of course, I'm going to do it because, you know, y'all are my best friends in the world. So, I'm Brandon. For those who don't know me, uh, real estate developer is my primary business. Um, started a company back in 2012, actually. Tried to be a developer in 2010, but I formed my LLC in 2012, got my first project in 2016. And from there, I developed over 500 units with over $100 million worth of development in the state of Wisconsin. Now I have a few thousand in my pipeline. Uh, hopefully by the end of the year, it'll be north of a billion. So look at the timestamps of this and we'll see what comes to fruition. But. Let's uh, let's take a step back real quick and just talk about your upbringing and then also growing up in Milwaukee. 
Milwaukee, man. So was raised uh, in Milwaukee. I moved there when I was five. Those who don't know my story, I was in an earthquake back in 1993, 94, January 94, and I moved to Milwaukee uh, from Los Angeles, by the way, Los Angeles. Parents high school sweethearts from Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, moved to LA shortly thereafter, had me raised there, lost everything, moved to Milwaukee. My dad wanted to come back to the Midwest, uh, closer to family, closer to home after literally lost everything. My mother's father had additional space in the attic and we moved to Milwaukee. I was right there off of Sherman and North and I ended up going to Highmount Elementary. And that experience was, we'll talk about MPS, I'm sure, but uh, even doing that, even though I was five, my birthday was late. And I think you're the same, right? We mm -hmm. were always the youngest, like in yep. the class. Mm -hmm. I started kindergarten in LA and then I moved here when I was five and they were trying to tell me to start next year. My mom was like, he's already in kindergarten, what do you mean? And they were telling me no. So I had to take a test, ended up passing it, and that's how I graduated high school at 17. So once I hung out, then Morris and Riverside. Uh, could you talk about, like, I know your parents very well, and could you just talk about their influence on your life? I come from a really big family. Like, yeah. my, my grandfather had 11 kids that we know of. Um, then on my other side, <clears throat> my dad had five, you know, siblings of his own. So. Between my two parents, I mean, we had close to 20 aunts and uncles at yeah. a certain point in time. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of, and they all had kids. And even like their first cousins, it was 10 to 15 of them. So I have a huge family, but I'm the only child. And growing up, all of my family were in different things. You know, they weren't necessarily going to college and doing the things that we have, you know, established ourselves to do. I listened to y'all episode. Um, if y'all haven't watched their podcast or listened, y'all got to listen, but the one around survivor's guilt, you know, mm. spoke to me because we all deal with the same things, right? My parents insulated me from really the rest of my family, to be honest. Uh, and they were very intentional about that, not to the point where I couldn't go over there, spend holidays and things like that. But on a day to day basis, they really didn't want me around that environment. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to do what they thought was important for me to do. I was outside, you know, hooping, playing football. Um, never really in the streets. I was, I saw it, I was adjacent, but I wasn't in it. Um, so my parents' influence on that has really uh, molded me, in my opinion, to the person I am today. And then the last thing I think I'll add to that parent question is, I don't come from a lot of money, but I come from a lot of love. For them to give me everything that they possibly had off of, you know, less than $40,000 combined salary my whole life is amazing. You know, looking back and seeing how much it, it costs for you know people to even just be raised like i'm a child and they i didn't want for anything mm -hmm. growing up like mm -hmm. most people that are poor in poverty don't know that when they're going through it you don't know it until you're looking back at it so my parents raised me with love they raised me with core values they raised me um with integrity frankly and that really has uh been a pivotal uh influence in my life throughout you know so obviously tom had a chance to talk about how you guys have known each other for over 20 years and where you guys first connected. Um, and I've also known you for not 20 years, but at least 10, right? Um, and so, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I was at Marquette. And so can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, your time in Marquette? I was one of the best and worst, time, worst times of my life, hands down. Uh, Marquette was interesting, man. I, I met lifelong friends, you know, there. And I'll never take that for granted. But the way that the school was shaped wasn't conducive to frankly what i wanted to do or how i wanted to learn so i just didn't excel in mm -hmm. college um 
I was talking to I think both of y'all about this. Like it was a certain point where I was culture shocked, right? Coming through the Milwaukee public school system, predominantly black, getting raised on a predominantly Latino area. Like I'm always with black and brown people. But to go to a school that was four percent black, mm -hmm. eleven thousand people, four percent black, there was very few of us. And some of the folks that checked that box weren't necessarily uh they didn't identify with black, but they had a different lived area. experience. Right. You know, so <laughs> that was even smaller. So let's say it was only 2%. So, but for, you know, the homies that we ended up building lifelong relationships with the rest of the campus just wasn't for me. And I didn't, at that time, I wasn't mature enough to understand the importance of networking, mm -hmm. uh, the importance of building the relationships with people that were there. And I was more focused on color and race than, anything else to be honest and because i didn't see people that look like me because they didn't have my same shared experience i didn't embrace uh marquette in the way that i probably should have um but everything else for a reason right again the flip side of that is some of my best friends in the world right mm -hmm. exhibit a met at this university and um i was able to take the things that i learned there and use it to navigate the rest of my life yeah. i guess what was your mindset even at that time like how was you how were you approaching it and what did you learn from that experience Shoot, that's a good question man uh my mindset at that time was just to save face right like i didn't know i didn't know what i was going through i couldn't quite pinpoint i wasn't again i wasn't mature enough to identify that this was you know a mental uh strain right mm -hmm. like now that I'm 33, I can look at that and say, oh, that's not normal. That's not what I should have been doing. But going to class at you know 10 in the morning, because I wasn't doing 8 a.m. classes. Wasn't no eight o'clock happening. So 10 a.m. was hard. Yeah. It was at Mikey's on Wednesday. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Wednesday, Wednesday through Sunday, bro. Yeah. Basically, it was, it was outside. outside. <laughs> <laughs> With no money, too. I remember I was always saying $2 sauce was good. Yeah, bro. Yeah. I, yo, I had $5 for like two weeks, bro. Uh-huh. Went out every yep. day. Yep. Swipe. <laughs> and then just basically just be like, yo, I got you next week. Anyone that doesn't know a swipe, we had this food program. Anybody that lived in the dorms, you had like a infinite number of oh, cafeteria get, swipes, cool right? Yep. Infinite, bro. So we could go in. One person swiped the three of us, and now the three of us eating off that one car. Yep. That's, that's how we live. All five of us. Facts. And, and <laughs> swiping at lunch and just stay there till what? Yeah. Eight all day. All day. So we had a bunch of debates there. But I uh, think I had the longest shift there because I was there one day, like probably legit, like 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. People saw me at lunch. People saw me at dinner in the same spot. Like, hey, bro, you still here? Yeah, I just yeah, it's all you can eat, bro. Like they switch up the menu. You get to you get cool with the chefs, and they tell them like, yo, could you give me this on the? Throw side? some cheese on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Different ways of people I was talking to. Like that was that was a good side of marketing. Right? Yeah, being lunch all day, but but yeah, your mindset. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I didn't know what I was dealing with. You know, honestly, uh, now that I'm older, I can you know quantify and identify exactly like, oh, this isn't normal. This is not what I should have been going through but i was young and just learning man honestly mm -hmm. like it just was what it was mm -hmm. and that's the same way my mindset is today like whatever is facing me in life it is what it is like we just have to deal with it find the best way to kind of move forward and weather the storm so so there's this period of time you know after marquette till now 
you know, where obviously people that are familiar with you and your platform, they know uh, you're an entrepreneur, real estate developer. They know sort of some of the things that you that you have going on. But can we talk a little bit about sort of that period of time after Marquette, uh, figuring out what your passion was uh, and, and sort of how you were able to get to where you are today? Yeah, uh, it just dawned on me that but for a scholarship, we wouldn't be here right now. Facts. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't have went to Marquette. Facts. I wouldn't have went to Marquette. Mm. We wouldn't have met later. No. Mm-hmm. So the irony of the name of the podcast yeah. is, is, yeah. is definitely there. So leaving there, uh, I'm like, yo, I need to figure this thing called life out. And I was just studying. I was studying life. Around that time, remember March 2010, we got evicted. That's yeah. when you moved in with him. wild. Right? Wild times. We got evicted for some other reasons. Six of us living in one house and we was paying what? Uh, it was probably $300 a month. So yeah, we, we ended up getting evicted and really just dealing with trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Like getting evicted, grades was bad, like a bunch of stuff going on. And I was just trying to figure out who I was, right? Like how do you go and create this identity that's beyond just, oh, this person went to Marquette or at that time, oh, that's Brandon from T-Mobile or Brandon from Best Buy. Anybody from Milwaukee, you're going to know like be mm-hmm. from PNC. Be, yeah. <laughs> now I'll be the real estate developer, yeah. be the mm-hmm. affordable housing guys, like continuing to evolve in these different, um, you know, lanes was important to figure out one, it's okay to adapt. It's okay to shift. It's okay to change. Yeah. And the only way I figured that out was really studying the grades. Like around 2010, 11, 12-ish, I created this thing called the Success Manual. And I studied every single quote from every single one of these like people that I admire. Mm-hmm. And I just saw like really, really, really reoccurring themes. Like unwavering belief in self was important. Mm-hmm. And work ethic. When you put those two things together, you get greatness. And I started to create my luck. This is something I've been thinking about over the last um, couple of weeks is like when people ask me, how did I get to where I got to? Or even like in the future when I'm well beyond where I am, I'm going to start telling people I was lucky. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say that from not just like, oh, this happened by chance. Like, no, I create my luck. Luck is just when preparation meets opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right. I was very prepared for every opportunity that came. And I still am very prepared for every opportunity that's coming to me. So understanding where that is on that journey. Like for me, it was always finding the end goal and reverse engineer. So my end goal, I want to be a billionaire. I want to buy a sports team. That's the end goal. How do I get there? Okay. One of the ways that I can get there is through real estate, through investing, through tech, through private equity, like all of these different things. And you add on layers, but you can't do it all at once. Like you master one thing add on a little bit more, master another thing, add on a little bit more. But one, I believe myself and that I can do it. And two, I work harder than anybody else trying to do it. So for me, it's like, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's going to be lucky. I'm going to be an overnight success, just like I have been over the last 12 years since that time, 11, 12, whatever the case may be. It's been luck, but very like predetermined luck based upon the route in which I'm planning to go. Hmm. I, I think the the best part about seeing you grow, like I said, I re- I remember the the downs, like the when you were oh, yeah. like trying to find jobs, and we were just like doing random, like we worked at Potomatomy for like three months, it was yeah. a casino in Milwaukee. Um, but one thing that was always consistent is that you you were certain 
you were going to be fine. And one thing that I always appreciated about you is that one, you were willing to put in the time, but you were willing to persevere through anything. Yeah. And I guess I wanted to give give your insight on like what perseverance means to you, because you weren't you weren't shy from like a no. You're like, no, OK, cool. Like I'll go into the next job, go into the next opportunity. Like, you were very much so certain, like, I know this is where I'm going. No matter how it looks today, yeah. this is where I'm going. Can you talk about like your, that mindset? Perseverance is my favorite word in the dictionary. So that, you know, is who I am. It's how I'm wired. <clears throat> it's funny because I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur early on from some of these experiences that you're speaking about. Mm -hmm. That job that we worked at together, uh, well, this, we worked a couple jobs together. But yeah, this yeah, yeah. Potawatomi job that we worked at together, uh, we were host at a sports bar <laughs> in the casino <laughs> in the casino right because it was a it was a well-paying job it I mean, was. We was getting money i think we got paid every week or something yeah yeah so yeah. it was cool we were in school and i told them hey i want to work three days a week like that's the most i could do they were putting us on the schedule for five days in a week you remember mm -hmm. this for whatever reason they would say oh our schedule dates are like these weird dates and it would literally be five days in a three-day span. I mean, in a seven-day span. And it's like, no, I didn't sign up for this. Like, I need three days. We accepted four days. Yeah. And then five days, they were pushing it. But one of the things was, yes, I'm going to always be straight, was one piece. But the other piece was, you need to respect me and who I am, not who I appear to you to be, who I know I am. Mm -hmm. And if there's ever a misalignment of someone not respecting who I know myself to be, we're done. So that one, for example, a good friend of ours, Ryan Cooks, was having a birthday party at our house. We hosting. You know, we used to have really nice parties, 300 people yeah, in, 15, in the back 15, of us. <laughs> back at a crib, you know, up down. Highland. 15th Highland. Highland. There we go. So getting back to that story, I was trying to get off. I'm like, yo, I need off this weekend. My guy having a – whatever the reason was, it didn't matter. Y'all making me work five days, and I accepted that. I'm asking y'all for this day off. And they're like, oh, no. Mm -hmm. No, what do you mean? No, I already accommodated you for some stuff I shouldn't even have been doing. All right, cool. <laughs> we are not aligned. Never went back. That was my last day. <laughs> <laughs> no two-week notice, no, no nothing. Yeah. Okay. okay, yeah, I see. That's what y'all on? Oh, y'all messing with the wrong one. So, boom, mm -hmm. I quit. Mm -hmm. They hitting him up the next day. Hey, where's your friend? <laughs> you know, we live together. <laughs> like, man, <laughs> like, I don't know. But to that, it's like, I'm going to make it through. I had no backup plan. I had no, no additional job. I had no money saved up. I think, I think, wait. That, and I didn't care. The best part about the story, you quit the job. Yeah. You on the, you on the way back to the party <laughs> and your car breaks down yeah. right in front of the house. Bro, and you dad. still didn't even think like. Yo, maybe I need that job. He was like, no, I'm good. You know what I'm saying? I didn't think that one time I need to go get that job so I can get my car fixed. It was always like, I'm going to figure it out. I didn't know how I was going to figure it out, but I knew I was going to figure it out because I always better myself. So I knew at an early age that entrepreneurship had to be for me because I only like doing what I like to do. And in college, I didn't appreciate that about myself. I didn't embrace that enough about myself. In the classes that I wanted to do well in, I excelled. Everything else, it was like philosophy. Later hated philosophy too. Whatever. <laughs> like, what is it? Yeah. Why, why am I learning this? So those things definitely um, put me on the entrepreneurial track. But also in high school, I wanted to be a doctor, right? So I started off studying like chemistry and bio. And when we were going to these classes, like 
I did really well in the physical therapy classes, but like chemistry and bio just didn't work out. I'm in these classes of like 400 students sitting in the back, not talking to nobody, not going to any other study sessions, not in any work groups, literally just in my own world. And at this time, I would like walk to school with my headphones on. I would walk around the whole day. I would go to my classes, not say nothing. Walk around the whole day, not say nothing. Go all the way back home to y'all. And then I'll talk again. Mm. So all of that was really the foundation of me saying, okay, I need to focus on what I want to do and what I like to do. And because I didn't excel in chemistry and bio, I had to switch majors. So I ended up studying sociology and then the Dean of Economics freestyle. Hey, have you thought about this? I'm like, no, took that, changed my major to econ. And then in 2010, I took the ACRE program, Associates in Commercial Real Estate. So it was a program aimed at professionals, not college students, but professionals of color that were interested in getting into the field that had no experience. Like if you were a plumber, this is a good program for you to see what's beyond just plumbing. If you were a personal banker, it's a good program to you to see what you know is beyond that. Um, and I was a student at the time. They let me in. I think I was the youngest ACRE grad ever. And from that, it was like, oh, this real estate thing is cool. My parents had, even though they didn't have much money, they bought a duplex or well, a single family home at the end of where we lived for $5,000 back, like way back in the day. And my dad kind of fixed it up. And that was my first like introduction to like real estate. Mm. Like, oh, they got an investment property. I want to do investment property. I'm going to be a doctor and then I'm going to have investment property because that's basically what my parents, that's what my dad was doing. And with the Acre program, it's like, oh, I could do so much more than this. I could develop buildings and I can impact communities and all of this thing, all of these things. And it was really three things that said real estate. One, I had autonomy on my time. I built my own schedule. I wanted to do that. Two, I could continue to help people, which that was the only reason why I wanted to be a doctor anyway. And then three, create wealth for me, myself, my family, my friends, et cetera. That was why real estate. But then, you know, obviously real estate is still a wide field. Yeah. You still landed on specifically being a real estate developer. Can you talk about what is a commercial real estate developer and, and what exactly do you do? I am like the director of a movie. I put everything together and I make sure that it goes the way it's supposed to go. So I think through what my business goals are at the time. <clears throat> and I wasn't this like strategic. I'm, this is like me in hindsight. At the time, my business goals was to create affordable housing, right? So how do you do that? You go out and you identify an area in which you want to develop this. And I wanted to do it in my backyard. Like I was raised on national, so I wanted to do it on national. So when a developer goes and identifies a parcel of land, thinks about what the highest and best use of that land could be, and then puts together the plan and executing and implementing on that plan to bring it to fruition. The process of doing that includes getting the land under contract, right? That's the first kind of step. Hey, this land is secured by this legal document that draw right up. Mm -hmm. And it says, you cannot sell this land to anyone but me. And these are the parameters in which I'm gonna buy it for, whether that's the mm -hmm. price, the length of time, et cetera. So you get it under contract first, and then you work with lenders for your debt. This is how much of a loan we'll give you. Then you work with equity investors for the equity. This is how much equity we'll give you. And all of these things have to tie into alignment on the sources side, which is your debt and your equity with 
the uses, right? So how much is the acquisition price? How much are the hard costs? How much are the soft costs? Architectural fees, mm -hmm. engineering fees, et cetera, et cetera. Developer fees. And then you put all of that together and say, okay, this is the full picture. This is a financial model. This is project summary, whatever the case may be. And you effectively bring that to fruition mm -hmm. by hiring the contractors and hiring the architects and hiring the engineers through that budget. So the project pays for them. I don't pay for them out of my pocket. I don't, unless the project is over the cost and I have to put it into the project, but the project pays every single consultant on that budget on that line item. I wanted to effectively be at the top of the food chain. Like a developer, that's what it is. It's the top of the real estate food chain. Everything comes below that. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to control um, that piece because it really impacts communities at a very, very large scale. So I started off in affordable housing and now I'm progressing into you know more market rate housing, more mixed use type of things. I developed a grocery store in Madison. And now I'm really, really focused on doing master plan developments. So it just continues to evolve. But development was definitely what I wanted to do. Uh, if you can, could you talk about like the process of like becoming a developer? Because I think a lot of times people see you on IG or social media and they're like, oh, I can do that. That's easy. Yeah. In reality, I remember like 2010, 2011, whatever, you just studying development, talking yeah. to uh, Kevin Newell talking to whoever you could about yeah. how do I get into this practice? You're also a black man, right? Right. In Milwaukee, you kind of stick out like a sore thumb, but because you're educated, you kind of get, you know, you can get into it a little better. So could you talk about the process of studying, like how to be a developer and some of your influences, I guess? Yeah, my path was unconventional. And I say that because there is no conventional path, but I took a really unique route as I've never worked for a development company. Uh, a lot of people get into development by working for a company at some point. And even that is a challenge, right? Or coming in through finance and lending, which is kind of more so my background, construction, architecture, legal. There are many different paths to becoming one, but mine in particular, it was really being resourceful, mm -hmm. right? People come up to me all the time. Hey, I want to be a developer and I need you to, you just, you just killed yourself with that. And not with me necessarily, but with yourself. The moment you believe you need me, Brandon Rule, for you to do anything in your life is a problem. Because mm. I never needed anyone to get me to where I was going and where I'm planning to go. So I think really having that mindset of um, self-sufficiency and also resilience throughout was really like how I focused and created a path for myself. I was networking. That was mm. one of the biggest things, just meeting different people, going to conferences, flying to LA on buddy passes, not having any money, sleeping on couches, going to the conference with the, you know, $200 suit on I got from Boston store, yeah. right? With the cars that I printed out in my printer, like with the nappy fro before, you know, all, all of that, that was my path in 2010, 2011. Mm -hmm. Like I was literally flying everywhere. Like I would be in the rooms. But now, because they've known me for 10 years, because I've been in the industry for 10 years, there's a heightened level of comfortability. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, we trust you. you can, you're can. you not here for a one-off deal. You are here and really supporting this industry as a host, or how can we pour back into you? And I think when you put yourself in those rooms and you make the proper connection with folks, people do give back, right? Like, I never really had a mentor until recently. Um, got my first one real like formal mentor over the last like year and a half but before that 
it was just one-off conversations with people like that. It's just, hey, let me get this from you and this from you and this from you. And putting together the piece of the puzzle, pieces of the puzzle is how I like created this life that I'm living now. But resilience was the number one thing. So for those of you that don't know this, Milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities in the country. And real estate, like you mentioned, is, is the good old boys club. And so can you just talk about some of the challenges that you face sort of trying to learn this space as a black developer? Yeah, it's interesting because Milwaukee is one of the worst places for black people in the country, like across the board, segregation. We're top three in segregation, mass incarceration, inequalities between blacks and whites, uh, income I think, I think and teen, wealth. Teen pregnancy as well. Across the board, like this is not a good place for black people at all and real estate being predominantly white like owned by you know white people it 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 has been a challenge but what's interesting is that milwaukee has more black developers per capita than any probably where else in the world mm. like definitely in the country but probably in the world per capita like Milwaukee has a lot of black developers primarily because of the exposure that the acre program did mm. So for me, going through that program, it allowed me to connect with people I probably wouldn't have been able to connect with otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that did help me build this kind of path for myself. So I know we were going in one direction. I'm going to shift it a little bit because it actually did. It, it was helpful. Once you have the acre stamp, you can get, you know, some calls answered that. But for acre, I wouldn't okay. have got an answer, yeah. though. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Because I went through that, I'm just acknowledging that privilege. I know you, you provided an overview of what a commercial real estate developer does, but can you talk about your first actual real estate development project? Uh, what was the takeaway, the process, things like that? Yeah, my first project was uh, $12.5 million, 60-unit affordable housing development mm -hmm. right on 7th and National in my backyard. Uh, it was tough, man. It was super, super tough. I thought that I was going to become a millionaire. And I ended up at closing three and a half years later, getting paid six thousand mm. uh, dollars. Wow! Not, not many people would work for that long for that amount of money. Mm -hmm. And then last year, I got another twenty-four grand, and that was my full pay fee off the mm -hmm. deal, like thirty thousand dollars for really the culmination of me starting. Right, that was in twenty eighteen. I started in twenty ten, so eight years I made six thousand dollars in development. It's you know insane. So it taught me that. If you're doing this for the money, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing because there's easier ways to make money. Like I can go online and sell an online course to someone right now and make millions of dollars for marketing. And that was never like my intent. It's not what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I wanted to really impact change the community through um, the building of buildings. And now I'm getting into the people thing, not like charging courses, but doing that a little bit more. But that first, first deal, um, it was tough. And, and recently I realized that that's more of a community development type of play. Mm -hmm. It's not traditional commercial real estate. When you have tax credits and subsidies and grants, like that's not commercial real estate. Egbert Perry, who um, I really admire, he bifurcated his business. I'm actually mirroring that myself. So on one side of my business, I have community development. On the other side, I have commercial real estate. Community development, capital M for mission, right? Little P for profit. Uh, commercial real estate, capital P for profit, a little information, if any mission at all. I really learned the difference between those two and how important it is to 
if you want to be in community development, double down on that, build those relationships there. That's what I did. Mm -hmm. If you want to be in commercial real estate, double down on that, build those relationships mm -hmm. over there because they're not the same. The lenders are completely different. The underwriting is completely different. The buildings look the same, but the way that the business and operation like runs underlying is, is different. So that was all just a learning experience for me now that I look back on my first deal. Can you talk about why you've been intentional about using real estate to impact change? Uh, affordable housing, man, is, is something that is a crisis, right? And I think I realized that at a very early age in terms of like, you know, what 20 year old out of college, 21 year old is caring about, you know, a global crisis or even an American crisis in that way. And for me, I knew that I can do anything I put my mind to. So mm -hmm. I was like, yo, I can truly help people. That was my whole goal. Like I wanted to help people. Again, it's taught me in my time and I wanted to create wealth, but I knew I could help people through this. So coming up in Milwaukee, you see different parts of the neighborhood or you see different parts of the city. My mom was very influential in this. So I always wanted to be like my dad in terms of like, that's why I wanted to be a doctor. He was an x-ray professional. But my mom was in community development. She was a um, volunteer for the Clark Square neighborhood for you know 20 years, giving back to the community. So it was ingrained in me. Both of my parents are givers, like mm -hmm. very much so. And once I was like, oh, community development is also, you know, real estate is a, is a function of that. I'm like, oh, I can do this. I can still help people. I can still live kind of through my parents and what they're doing and create a larger scale. And affordable housing just made the most sense mm -hmm. in this neighborhood that's facing gentrification, right? I see it changing. Like the neighborhood should change, but the people from the neighborhood don't always participate in the change. And that's what I found problematic. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to figure out how to one hop in it and implement that change, do it in a tasteful way that is inclusive of the people within the neighborhood. And then also teach others that are coming behind me how to do this as well. Like that was my intentional goal. Um, but way more things end up happening. And I think that's why I'm even more so, um, passionate about it now as I learn more and more and more about it, right? Can you explain or talk about how your job or your your entrepreneurship or what have you, building development, how that gives you a bigger sense of purpose? I knew that I was creating affordable housing, but I didn't realize the impact that I had on people. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to do it for black and brown, but it was happening for others too. There's a guy, um, oh, he was an old veteran, lives in my apartment, pays... You know, at the time, probably three eighty a month. I mean, it's probably four hundred bucks or so now. Uh, I've got to look at the exact numbers, but he, we did our walkthrough, and he invited us into his home. He opened it up for uh, the developers, the investors, and everyone. And he said something that was so profound. He was like, "Yes, I love living here. You know, stainless steel appliances and all of this. But the most important thing about this house is that I have an address." Okay. Hmm. Before I was living in Tent City, right up the street. And he was like, now I have an address and I can get my medicine. He's a veteran dealing with a lot of PTSD and homeless, primarily because of some of those things. But he didn't have access to meds at all because if you don't have an address, you cannot get your medicine. Hmm. I never knew that. Mm -hmm. So not only am I providing housing for people that need it the most, not only am I creating mixed income communities where people at market rate levels, 
and everyone cohabitating and realizing we're more close than we are separate, I'm also impacting lives and saving lives, frankly, through giving the medicine that they need to be able to be, you know, citizens of this country and, and do the right thing. So that I was passionate about it, but now it's even more so because I'm realizing how much more of a unintended consequence of, you know, this good work that I'm doing is, mm -hmm. is really magnifying across the globe. I mean, that you're speaking to sort of, sort of some of the imputed benefits of, of real estate. Yes. Um, wow. I mean, that was, that's, that's, that's crazy. What role do you think real estate can play um, in decreasing the racial wealth gap? For me, I think it's the number one way to do it, right? If we look at historically the creation of wealth, it was through land, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it was through land passed, passed down from generation to generation. We know there's certain facts on earth. One, land appreciates over time, right? Inflation happens, the cost is more, you know, expensive. So if the land that was stripped from, you know, the indigenous people of this country and that was excluded from, you know, African-Americans that built this country uh, has done nothing but go up. That's why, in my opinion, a primary reason why the wealth gap create it, it's here in the way in which it exists. So for me, I want to address that head on. The top 1% of the country owns 40% of the real estate. Top 10% of the country owns 82% of the real estate. So the bottom 90% only own 18% of the real estate in the country. That is problematic, extremely problematic, mm -hmm. right? Commercial real estate, at least. So we need to address that. On the residential side, that becomes problematic, too, because historically, when people were starting businesses, you were able to get loans off of the equity that was coming from your home. And now you can't afford to buy a home and people of color are the main ones that don't have resources to be able to build their business and be sustainable and do all of these things, which is exacerbating the problem because the number one um, employer of black and brown people are small businesses. Mm -hmm. So small businesses don't have the resources that they need in part because they can't get the resources that they historically have been able to get because the homes are no longer available. It's, it's really a domino effect across the board, both in the commercial real estate side and the residential real estate side, in my opinion. So we could fully address it through that. So obviously one layer uh, of what you're doing is through direct commercial real estate. Um, but I'm obviously aware of other ventures that you have going on. Can you talk a little bit about uh, reinvest and what that is and why you decided to start that initiative? Reinvest. Yes. Uh, passion project of mine that hopefully will, transcend the way we invest right now um it was founded by three brothers um that were all living in dc at the time i'm the ceo um the cto is monquez de so it's very rare to have a full stack black cto mm -hmm. on your company and i've been blessed to get that and then uh the coo um who's taking a leave at the moment because he has a work responsibility i won't share his name but um we created this thing called reinvest right it stands for real estate investing so re real estate investing but also reinvesting in the community and even though i've developed a hundred million dollars worth of developments to date my mother hasn't been able to invest in my deals mm -hmm. if you're non-accredited which means 
there's an accredited investor designation that enables you more access to be able mm -hmm. to invest in securities. Um, it's like 200K salary. Yeah. Or something. yeah. If, mm -hmm. if you're making 200K over the last two years or have a million dollars in net worth, excluding your personal revenue, mm -hmm. personal residence, you are accredited mm -hmm. and you can invest in these real estate deals that historically have had a hundred thousand, you know, 50 to a hundred thousand dollar minimum. Mm -hmm. Even if we were accredited, you know, we couldn't meet park the money into it for the most part. So how do we create something for the masses and enable everyone to be able to participate in the wealth generating aspects of real estate? Mm -hmm. That's what reinvest is for. We're democratizing the process and saying, Hey, we want you all to join us in this journey. I don't want to build billions of dollars and only get the money to myself. Mm -hmm. I don't want to build billions of dollars and only give the, you know, the equity and the returns to institutions like NM and um, only give it to high net worth individuals. Mm -hmm. Definitely want to work with them, continue to work with them for sure. Um, but why can't all of us participate? I'm sure your mother will want to invest yep. in real estate mm -hmm. at a higher mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. So how do I bring that at a lower cost, right? For a thousand dollars, you can invest as opposed to a hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. That's really the goal behind reinvesting. That's what we're looking at accomplishing. Um, early next year, it, it'll be out. Man, that's that's so dope. <laughs> like, like genuinely, even just the fact that you said three three black dudes are collaborating to build this like the black fundraiser or, yes. or better, basically, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. That's that's incredible. Yes, and and it's. I mean, the reality is fundraise three four years ago. I think was worth seven hundred eight hundred million dollars, right? Mm. And they had about a hundred and a little over a hundred thousand investors. I think right now they're probably over two fifty. Um, and they're they're definitely unicorn stocks. Mm -hmm. They're over a billion dollars of valuation. We know the black dollar transcends everything else, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And if done properly, being able to get a hundred thousand people or two hundred thousand people, I think is a very tangible goal. Mm -hmm. Right. So if reinvest, if and when reinvest gets to you know 200 300,000 users on the platform and we're worth a billion dollars one that creates a significant amount of jobs mm -hmm. right like and we prioritize black and brown people and creating access for those in our network to be able to have upper mobility in tech in real estate in private equity and asset management etc so i looked at them and said okay we can do this too right i looked at cadre and ryan williams and what he was doing it was phenomenal um, he partnered with the two Kushner brothers and they were co-founders. That's cool. But they were only for accredited investors and institutional investors. Mm -hmm. Fundrise was for non-accredited investors. But I think there was a missing element of community um, in the way that I define it, at least. Right. Mm -hmm. So black, brown and ally, I think, focusing on that group that has been disenfranchised over mm -hmm. the years could lead us to uniform status. So really with that, it's like. You know, people see me as a real estate developer, but the reality is if things go as planned, I'll be, you know, real estate investor, real estate developer, but also a billion dollar tech fund. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's really the goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like with that, what do you think we can do as young black professionals um, to ensure like more Brandon rules, more Larry Whitley's, more Anthony Gaines? What do you think we can do to continue to build the bridge that will allow these next generations to envision themselves as as we have? I think the number one thing, it starts with exposure. Right? Mm -hmm. You don't know what you don't see. And if we continue to build platforms like this, tell stories like this, as mentioned scholarships, 
right? Like me getting a scholarship is the reason why all three of us are sitting here today. Mm -hmm. So telling the story about how opportunities, when they're presented to take advantage of them and you never know what could come from that, I think that's super important. And just creating um, access for those that may not be aware of certain things, right? So initially I wanted to be, you know, affordable housing developer, but now it's like, oh, I want to get into real estate on a you know higher level. I want to build skyscrapers. I want to get into private equity. I want to do all of these other things that frankly I didn't have exposure or access to prior to. So I think it's just the exposure that really leads to the next generation being able to take something and create it through their mind. We see millennials and Gen Zs being able to go outside of the status quo and do things um, in an unconventional way. And I think that'll continue to snowball into uh, success stories that we frankly have not been able to see today. And that actually sort of pivots into my next question around um, ever since I've known you, you've always had a clear vision of one, your, like your life and, and where you wanted to go. Um, where do you think that comes from? So the, the, the reason I'm asking the example, like earlier on in, in this episode, you said, uh, you know, I'm going to own a sports team one day. I'm going to yeah. be a billionaire. Yeah. Like these are things that if people don't know B, like they're probably just like, he's just talking, but like, no, he's, he's literally going, <laughs> yeah. he's going to do those things because yeah. I remember sitting back earlier when we were younger, you're saying, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. Like, wh where does that come from in terms of like, not just having a vision, but having a clear vision of what you want? Uh, I think your goals have to be unrealistic, right? Like studying goals and success and all of that, I think. When I realized that your goals have to be something that is almost unattainable or unattainable to most, then it's a pretty good goal, right? Mm -hmm. And then you got to effectively create a smart goal in order to like meet those mm -hmm. metrics. So I think it just comes from what's the furthest thing out there that I can fathom. Like back when I was younger, my goals were, uh, when I was like a child, get on Forbes one day, become a millionaire and go to Harvard. Um, oh, and then buy a Lamborghini. Mm -hmm. Like those were my goals. Um, and I just continue to, you know, grow. I'm still on that uh -huh. line, yep. right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't really care about publications as much right now. Like I care more about being on here than I do for it. Mm -hmm. uh, like this is this is the media outlet mm -hmm. I want to talk about and be on. Um, but sports teams are always been passionate about sports, you know, like whether we hooping or playing football, like I watch ESPN. Anyone has known me. I've watched more ESPN than probably anybody else. Like, that's the only channel that stays on all day, even when they're not talking about nothing. I just love, like, that environment. Mm -hmm. So, for me, that's the pinnacle. Like, that's that's where I – that's my I made it moment. Mm -hmm. Like, when I get to multiple, multiple, multiple commas, and when I get to uh, purchasing this either basketball or football team, whatever that looks like in that time, I can not take a step back, but I can, like, start to – at that point in time, I could start to, you know, smell my roses. Because right now I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, I hear all of this success stuff, but I, I don't feel like I've done anything. Mm -hmm. So that's like, okay, cool. Whether it's 40, 45, 55, 75, don't matter when it is. That's when I'm going to sit back and be like, okay, yeah, I did something cool. Mm -hmm. I've got a series of, I'll call them rapid fire questions that I want to throw at you just to get a response from you. Um, just so our listeners can get Single to answer. Like uh, word answer? Try to keep them as like concise as possible. Right. If you can answer it in one word, then you, then yeah. 
Um, the word or afraid. Is that exactly? Okay. Uh, so, and, and really, the goal is just for our listeners to get to know you a little better. Um, so, the first one is, um, what do you attribute your success to? My parents. One book that has greatly influenced your life. Thinking Grow Rich or Black Choice by Dennis Kimbrough. Um, one word to describe your legacy. Perseverance. It was it was just important for us to have a conversation about someone that we've seen, genuinely seen. Like I've seen the from the beginning, just come from you know this guy that is interested in real estate to someone that's actually developing properties. It's important for black people in general to see that, but it was important for me too, right? Like it was important for me and Larry to see that this person that we knew, I like. I was never cool with like an NBA player that made it to the NBA and that, that's my guy. Like, not to say that B is like an NBA player, but he's like the closest thing that I have where I saw his trajectory go to a place where it's like amazing, like like it's reputable, it's like Forbes worthy. It's, it's something that you can kind of tie something to and be like, damn. I remember when this dude had like ten bucks in his in his in his, in his whole bank account. I remember, I remember those times when when you really were struggling. You know what I'm saying? And now there are you have a, like a following where people are like they want to hear how you talk and they want to hear what's important to you. They want to hear your opinion. All the time and effort you put into like research and and just dedication to to that. It, it was it was it's dope to see. Tell people where we can find you. Cool, man. Uh, B rule on all platforms. So B underscore R U L E. Um, Instagram, TikTok. Never really on Facebook, but I'm, I have a profile somewhere on there. Uh, YouTube coming really soon. Please check out the Rose that grew. Uh, please check out Reinvest and uh, BrandonRule.com. You know, you go to BrandonRule.com and it navigates you to anything that I have going on. Because when people watch this five years from now. Um, some of the stuff that I'm doing now will be evolved and iterated upon but brandonroll.com will always remain constant you can just go there and see where where I am Mm -hmm. dope dope